I'm Marlo Edwards, as you all know, and I'm joined as ever by uh, my co-host, Nate Vithay. Hello. Glad to be back to discuss the, our favorite island, the island we can't escape. <laughs> the world's greatest island. An island run by people who know what they're doing. 100%. That's, our, that's our advertising position to the world. And uh, this time, we wanted to talk about um, not just the island itself, but the things that we've built on this island, the buildings that we inhabit as British people, the cursed architecture, if you will, of Great Britain. And uh, for that reason, we're joined by India Block. India, how are you doing? Hi, I'm great. I'm so happy to be stuck on Racist Island, the green and pleasant land with the grey and horrid architecture. <laughs> I was going to say, Alice always says the UK is a country with sick building syndrome, but we also invented sick building syndrome by making so many sick buildings. So, And not mm. sick in the Southern California skateboarder way, but in the actual literal sense. Yeah. Um, and the reason we wanted to talk about this is because I think a, a question that's often played on, on my mind and also on Nate's mind is, why do British houses look like such total shit? Because you may remember from the Corbyn era, which is now kind of a sort of hauntological period in British political history, like a brief, a brief chink of light in the otherwise eternal darkness, um, that, uh, you know, journalists would often camp outside Jeremy Corbyn's terraced house in Islington, and they would shout at him as he returned from buying milk, dressed in a polyester shell suit, and looking, to all intents and purposes, like he'd spent a morning drinking ruddles and praying the fruit machines down at Weatherspoons. Now, invariably, what they were shouting was along the lines of, Mr. Corbyn, you claim to be a socialist, and yet you live in a million-pound house. Now, there was one flaw in this line of attack, which was that Jeremy Corbyn's house looks like total shit. <laughs> it is a quite small 1970s yellow brick house with these horrible PVC panels and windows. And the question it really raised was, why is this house worth one million pounds? And the answer Jeremy Corbyn would surely have given them is, because we haven't fucking built any since the 1980s. Yes. Uh, hilariously, I, I live on a dead end row in Peckham, and uh, the people across the street from us bought their house. Uh, there's no way that we could afford to buy in the current prices, even if a British bank would lend to us, and they won't because we haven't lived in the country long enough. My wife's not a citizen yet. Uh, but the people across the street from us bought their also end terrace house that is um, a huge piece of shit that has to be completely gut renovated. Mm. And they, I mean, when I say gut renovated, they have been working on it with contractors for like five months now. They paid 700,000 pounds for it. I happened to check how much did that house sell for. And uh, I couldn't find that one recently or like long ago, rather. There is a house on the block that was purchased. Same thing, row house, mm. uh, purchased in 1995 for 50,000 pounds. But now would be selling for, yeah, 675, 700, 750, 800,000 pounds. Now, why is this? Because these buildings are all huge pieces of shit. Uh, Houses are the GameStop stock of Britain, truly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so India being uh, an architecture critic and uh, an astute observer of these things, we figured we might be able to get some answers. And specifically, there's one in particular we want to talk about, which is the phenomenon of pebble dashing, which is just slathering gravel all over the house until yeah. it looks like... What it's called British grits. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it, until, until it winds up looking like, I don't know, like you intentionally cast barnacles all over in a relatively even way. Yeah. What if the thing came on your house? <laughs> that kind of a that kind of a vibe. Um, so I figured probably India a good place to start was to do probably like a bit of a potted history of like kind of social housing in Britain and what has happened to it. Um, I'm not the world's greatest expert, but as, as I understand it, kind of the, the history of social housing is like one that broadly spans the 20th century. We kind of, for the first half of the 20th century, we were building it and some, at some, to some extent into the second half. And then at some point we stopped. 
Yeah, that's basically it. We decided to try briefly in the two interwar periods and then we just kind of went like, oh fuck, this is this is too much like hard work and we stopped. Um you can kind of, I mean, if you want to get really boring about it, you can trace it all the way back to our good old friends, the Tudors, um, which oh. is kind of the reason we have a really fucked up attitude um, towards the kind of the working poor in general and social housing in particular, because when uh, Henry VIII basically got reverse dick poisoning and decided to break with um, Catholicism in order to marry Anne Boleyn and take over as a head of the British church and state and fucked over all of the monasteries. Like we've all been hypnotized by pussy in our time. <laughs> <laughs> we have all, all been there. Um, and like absolutely no shade to, to Henry, but... Um, <laughs> the most relatable thing Henry VIII ever did was change the religion of Britain because he wanted to get pussy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but left the situation where previously, and you know, I'm not going to stand for the monasteries, but they had been doing quite a lot of work looking after um, poor people. And mm. then when they were dissolved and sacked and turned over to the crown, it just kind of fell to a very piecemeal system of local parishes kind of doing what they could. Um, this eventually mm. became kind of the almshouse system, which turned into the workhouse system, which is where you get to mm. the Victorians, who uh, who kind of got got on to this idea of social housing, but in like a really terrible way, um, particularly during the Industrial Revolution, when factory owners decided that um, what would be a really cool idea is if you build these little kind of model villages of houses mm. for your workers and then they can live in those houses and then you can like you can never be late for work if you if your boss owns your house yeah they can buy groceries in the company store <laughs> exactly and you can just shove people in these kind of the technical term is like a back-to-back terraced house which does what mm-hmm. it says on the tin which is like you just shove the houses up back to back um kind of notorious for poor sanitation and like shitty ventilation and uh yeah you you just you live there and you work there and uh that was kind of i guess probably the first experiment in social housing for the anyway UK. 1800 pounds per month uh <laughs> no you laugh milo but i'm telling you man i i have a bit of curiosity i got on a wikipedia search talking about um back-to-back houses and obviously some of them have been preserved in a sort of like museum pieces sort of thing, like, you know, an example of housing of the era. But in Nottinghamshire, apparently, not only are there still back-to-backs that are residential residential units, but they are particularly popular with student accommodations and buy-to-let landlords. So we of have course. actually gone back to that era of putting people into these homes. It's just that... Uh, back to back to back. Yeah, the modern incarnation of them. Well, the modern incarnation of the circumstances, literally the same houses. Yeah, my neck, my back, my houses back to back. And a lot of these Victorian terraced houses are incredibly, incredibly valuable now and held up as this pinnacle of the last time that we were building anything 
you know, mm. worth keeping, especially by kind of lovers of period architecture and classical architecture in general. And as we all know, they're extremely well built and they're extremely well insulated. They don't have any problems. And crucially, no one has done shitty jobs remodeling them <laughs> over the course no, of their 150 not. to 100 year lifespan. Yeah, they're still perfectly suited for our daily modern lifestyles, like no notes mm. whatsoever. Yeah, and this is a, a key thing to bear in mind for our uh, our American listeners is that uh, if we take London as an example, like London is an overwhelmingly kind of 18th century city. If you're looking at like its fundamental of its architecture, like because so much of it burnt down in the 17th century, it was kind of like largely rebuilt in the 18th century. So a lot of the houses that you see either come from the 1700s or like later Victorian, and this is where you get lots of these terraced houses with kind of like bay windows, like this either mm-hmm. kind of Georgian or Victorian aesthetic, which kind of carried on quite similarly. Into I mean, I'm not an architecture expert, but like Georgian, Victorian, and Edwardian houses all look like kind of similar. It's like a similar sort of terrace house with a bay window kind of vibe as far as i'm aware yeah i mean where i live the buildings nearby that have the dates of construction like sort of on their facades Mm. are all like 1901 1890 that kind of a thing and so like yeah more or less victorian but if you look in around king's cross i think a lot of those are georgian Mm. uh and yeah similar like they everything is like medium density yeah everything's it's like the overwhelmingly london is like a two-story city yeah. which is part of the reason why there are so many problems with housing. So if you go to a city like Berlin, every building is like five, six stories. But uh, that is not the case in London. Well, there are there are obviously like the, the, the post-war social housing towers and such. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, like it's by and large. Like your average, the weird thing is something I didn't expect was in New York, for example, where I used to live, like your sort of standard default expectation of like mm-hmm. an apartment in New York is, is living in a either a, a more recent build or like primarily in an old tenement building. And old tenements are typically five or six stories tall. And, you know, like they have fire escapes and they have like one entrance and that kind of a thing. Mm. But they're like higher density. Whereas here, yeah, it seems like it's mostly old family or multifamily housing Mm. uh, that has been that is in some state of disrepair and costs a fucking arm and a leg both to rent, but especially to buy. Yeah, that was the biggest shock to me was if you take obviously UK salaries are way lower. Mm. But if you take in pure dollar terms, like translate the pound cost to dollars rentals in London are maybe slightly, maybe 10, 15% cheaper. And you do tend to get a little more space than you would in New York. But in purchase prices, it's like an order of magnitude worse even than New York. Mm. And that's in a a country where like, you know, a starting salary for average white collar job is what, like 25,000 pounds or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, And that actually would be a pretty good starting salary. So yeah, that's, it's insane. Yeah. You're better off being a podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, sometimes. Yeah, so I guess, I guess India. Let, let's talk a little bit about the about the twentieth century and what and what that brought in terms of uh, uh, British housing. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you've said about the Victorians. I guess just like one thing to say before we before mm-hmm. we move along is that the the Victorian um, ideal of housing was really focused on the family, which is why they were all these single family houses, mm-hmm. and um, you'll get a very specific layout as well, which is that you have the kind of public facing rooms at the front so you have your parlor or your living room and then you will have the kitchen to the back which is the kind of the feminine sphere of the household and you shove that all on the back out of sight because it's disgusting and gross um <laughs> and then you have like the the bedrooms are upstairs. The house is for the fellas yeah yeah i mean if you had like a rich victorian person's house they would have like your smoking room and your gun room and your snuggery and all those kind of mm. 
fancy things for fancy men, but your bog standard London terrace house is is built in this way that kind of forms the family under this particular Victorian ideal. Um, so that and that's the kind of the better off parts of London. Then you've got your kind of your East End, which uh, essentially like it's a very lo- loaded word, but mm. we'll be coming back to it. So slums, essentially, kind of yeah. Uh, so people packed into homes that uh, tend to be like a couple of rooms at most sharing a tap that, um, you know, your running water would be shared between all of your neighbors and it could be down several flights of stairs. Um, Mm. no indoor plumbing, that sort of situation, which is where the kind of Britain found itself at the start of the, of the 20th century. Um, and as far as I can tell, no one, you know, so occasionally a council would be like, oh, wow, this, this kind of looks kind of crap. Maybe we should try and build mm. some, build some houses for the people that live here. But it wasn't until <laughs> the first world war where, um, kind of afterwards they were like, wow, like everyone we recruited from urban areas was like, just not, not in a good way. People's <laughs> people's health was so bad that it had impacted the war, and they noticed this kind of. Um, you spend your whole life in a British house, so you go to the west western front, and your trench foot actually gets slightly better. <laughs> I was going to make the joke, like, and we're finding these recruits, uh, their lungs uh, can't function without soot in them. <laughs> they take, take a fish out of water. I was just laughing also at the fact that. Um, you mentioned indoor plumbing not being a thing, and I've noticed that's the same with the row houses. That like oftentimes the uh, there's one toilet in the entire house in a row house. There'll be one bathroom, mm. and it's in the back. It's, it's sort of been tacked on because it was added later. Because when these houses were built, primarily like they were either outdoor lavatories, like just straight up uh, outhouses, or you know they they had there was I think with the um the back to for front to back houses or the back to back houses they were. There was like a block of toilets in the center courtyard, and that was the only toilets for like the whole neighborhood, the street, if you will. Shit, like a Roman legionary. (laughs) It's my favorite way to do it. Yeah, and this is still within living memory. I mean, my dad grew up in a kind of turn of the century house on a hill, and they didn't have indoor plumbing, I don't think, to begin with. Um, And actually, a lot of people, um, and I think this was the same in New York, when they started bringing toilets inside. Uh, people were like, this is disgusting and unsanitary. Like, have you seen the state of the toilets <laughs> out there on the street? Like, I don't want to bring this into like, my fucking house. So a lot of the kind of sanitation campaigns had to deal with the fact that people just did not want literally that shit in their house. It's like explaining like, well, there's water involved and it cleans everything out. It's, it's, not, it's not literally an outhouse in your house. But uh I suppose, yeah, if that's all you could conceive of, that makes sense why people might be bothered by it. You were telling me I'm supposed to have a shitter in my own house, <laughs> like an Arab. <laughs> God damn it. I mean, and I, I suppose, like, trust in the water quality was probably at an all-time low as well. Uh, mm. Like, a lot of British history can just be put down to the fact that people were just mildly drunk the entire time. Yeah, I think that does explain a lot about our national psyche that, you know, everyone was basically drinking watered down alcohol all day to avoid getting cholera. And like, you know, just the kind of policies we came up with were the product of that sort of being lightly sourced 24 hours a day kind of approach. Yeah, only good ideas. 
if you've been just like drinking mead since you were weaned. Absolutely. Um, and going back to the like the slums thing, I know that there's that there's that really freaky statistic that the population of London only got back to its 1939 level like quite recently, mm-hmm. like in the last 10 years mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and I remember hearing someone say like, well, how the fuck did they because we've built more housing since then? Like, how the hell did they fit all those people in there? And it's like the answer is slums. Slums. Yeah. Well, I mean, our old studio is in a like, I think, Victorian or maybe older mm. row block of, of houses in Whitechapel that had been converted and I'm pretty sure that those houses like like an entire family would be in a room like yeah I mean that was definitely how my grandmother grew up in like kind of one room or two rooms of a big house yeah Yeah. my uh, my mom was born in uh in a similar thing in in Norfolk and yeah when she was an infant they just they there wasn't any room so they just put her in like an empty dresser drawer like (laughs) I'm not joking like a fucking Furby like she won't shut up just close the drawer put her in the drawer yeah yeah 100% yeah, that, that that does sound like a very cursed British thing. Like, well, when I was a child, my mother would put me in the child drawer <laughs> when I wouldn't be quiet. A drawer would be preferable. Have you seen the baby cages? No. So because they were worried about babies getting rickets, um, they, used, they used to hang these metal cages outside of a window and it had a kind of platform and then you would kind I of did see that. That was kind baby. of a New York thing, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I think like mainly in America, but they have of- them now still in New York, but for a different reason. So hilariously, uh, I have seen them where it's like you can't have a balcony, so instead they built like a cage on the window that you can kind of step out onto, like a, like a ersatz balcony. Mm-hmm. But the only place you see them anymore in New York are in ultra orthodox Jewish neighborhoods, because for families who want to celebrate Sukkot, which like if you're ultra orthodox, you celebrate all the holidays, and Sukkot is one of them. One of the uh, the those sort of rules is that you have to basically eat outdoors in a like a covering that has like exposed to the stars and whatnot. And obviously, it's much easier to do that. Uh, it, it's sort of to commemorate being in the desert uh, in exile. But like, it's one of those things where. You uh you can't really do that and have everyone build like a dwelling on the street if their whole apartment building is going to do it. So instead, they have these like <laughs> these balconies that then get covered with palm fronds, but they're cages. Uh, so it does still exist. I guess it's still technically illegal because I mean I presume if it was illegal, they would they would shut it down in in New York City. But uh, yeah, that the huh. the idea of that being an anti rickets baby cage is insane, but also very plausible given the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that actually worked for stopping kids getting. I have no idea what how you actually get rickets or what it does. It's like yeah, a, it's a bit either. like scurvy, isn't it? It's I like a kind of malnutrition. Yeah, I think thing. it's like something with with malnutrition because I remember um, a lot of people in the American South had rickets because like they're basically everything they ate was corn, like cornmeal, everything, and like I guess I don't know if it's iron or niacin or something. There's something you can't you need to get that you're not getting if you're on that diet, and yeah, you get rickets. Yeah, I think oh. it's dietary, but also sunlight related. I think. Yeah, I'm not sure, yeah, okay. yeah, but uh, I, I I do I do find that fun. also. To tie it to the New York experience, one of the things that I find really funny is that, um, you know, obviously a lot of the the uh, American Jewish population is from Eastern Europe, and mm-hmm. they were fleeing pogroms in the late 19th century primarily. And a lot of people, not all of them, many people from that community came to the UK first, and mm-hmm. they saw Whitechapel, and they're like, yeah, fuck this shit, <laughs> and got back on the boat and went to New York, which was better, had better housing. And if you know anything about New York around the turn of the century- Greatest city in the world, baby. That is saying something. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the, I, I suppose like really in, cause you have in London, you have all these sort of like social housing blocks, I guess the first like proper big blocks that you see are probably like 1930s India. 
Yeah, so the 1930s, um, when they they decided that this was an issue, they basically went around and made every local um, government come up with a slum clearance plan. So they had started to mm. mobilize. Um, it was like passed into into law, basically, that, that they had to start um, planning how to to rehouse people. Um, mm. But then, so you started getting a few, but then the Second World War came along and kind of interrupted it, but also, uh, I guess, fast-forwarded it by bombing the shit out of a lot of these places. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, particularly because our studio is in Whitechapel, I mean, you can kind of see it really obviously where you'll have, like, a street of uh, Victorian houses and then a street of, like, brand-new stuff or stuff from, like, much later because just, like, it's a pepper pot of, like, what got bombed and what didn't, essentially. Yeah. I was thinking about that. My um, my great grandfather was born in Plumstead, not that far from where Hussein lives now. Mm. And the street he lives on, he he lived on at the time when he was born. He was born at home. Doesn't exist anymore because yeah, that whole row of terraces got bombed, or enough yeah. of them got bombed. They were like, "Fuck it, we're demolishing it." The Luftwaffe were terrified of Dave Courtney. They were trying to eliminate <laughs> him. But, uh, they couldn't do it. Couldn't be done. Yeah, um, I mean, and, and that um, that's a familiar story, I think. Especially, you said it was the East End too. Like, I think the East End got hit way harder, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, than, I mean, like, because because it, it was nearer the docks. Like, but that's also Plumstead is quite near the docks, yeah, so that yeah, makes yeah. sense. They were kind of yeah, the East End got bombed really hard. And so, correct me if I'm wrong, India, but I, as I understand it, post-war between the damage in the Second World War from the Blitz and from the Luftwaffe, and then from the demobilized population of of servicemen that there was just a massive, massive housing crisis in the UK. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people, when, when we talk about some clearances, like, to be clear, did not want to be moved. Um, mm. And I guess a kind of a, a more uh, appropriate way of saying it would be decanting. Um, but mm. yeah, pretty much a huge mobilization starting with like the 1950s where you got like flats and maisonettes and then progressing through the 60s and 70s where you have um you have the towers you get into more of this like high rise um building mode you get councils who are able to bring on architects who are bringing in a lot of ideas from mm. across europe which is where you get the kind of the modernist and the brutalist um era yeah, because if you look at say uh, the, I know that nowadays the sort of the nineteen thirties blocks are considered quite desirable because they tend to be brick built. They're not so high mm-hmm. rise. They're kind of like, more, I, I don't know. They're typically like five, six stories and quite long. Um, and then, but then the more modern blocks, like you say, you get more like high rise kind of of the the brutalist stuff, which is what really I think sticks in people's minds of yeah. like kind of your British council housing, like either either those tower blocks of concrete, which can be. I mean, one of the town I grew up in in Essex is a, is a new town, which we should get onto as a concept. But I think they have one of the tallest tower blocks, and it's about like 25 floors or something. Um, yeah, and you see some really wild ones in Glasgow and, and Edinburgh too, because there's huge slums there. So like the Gorbals Towers and stuff like that. And I think they've been mm-hmm. demolished. But yeah, you had like, I think over 30 stories, um, you know, situations like that. Similarly, I live very close to the former site of what was once North Peckham Estate, which was like one of the biggest estates i think in europe mm-hmm. even and um there's a lot of these big estate buildings in in southwark in and around sort of old kent road that area but most of them have been most of them are getting cleared out like the, the mm-hmm. council is destroying them and they're rebuilding but like they're it's all market rate housing 
Yeah, because I mean, one of the phenomenons that you see is that they they kind of built the most social housing like immediately after the war, and then it gradually tailed off until by the 1980s they were barely building any. And I think since then we've effectively built nothing. Well, there is also there is the big big reason for that, which I, I'm sure uh, we can get into. Oh which yeah, is we can right, get to right, that. <laughs> right yeah. to buy, which is yeah uh, to me a hilarious concept and still exists. But basically, the government is obligated to sell you your council estate when you've been housed by a local authority. Mm. Not only are you obligated they are obligated to sell it to you but like the price is incredibly low they're not allowed to reinvest that money in new social housing and you can become a buy to let landlord with that property if you want to and so uh, my first uh, apartment in the UK was a privately rented formal former council flat and uh yeah you know had been sold to somebody in the early 80s for like 10,000 pounds and the landlord was trying to sell it for 350,000 pounds um, it's not worth that, but I mean, what is anything worth when you get down to it? Because like the prices here are so insane. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I believe that came in under Thatcher in like 1980 or 81. But obviously, like I might be wrong too. Yeah, I think it was 1980. Yeah. Um, so I guess I guess let's talk before we get onto it. Before we get onto Thatcher, let's talk a little bit more about the kind of like 50s, 50s, 60s, and 70s because you get these tower blocks, um, but then also you get uh, the new towns mm-hmm. where they built a lot of these towns around London. I mean, I kind of, I've, in in preparing this episode, I focused a lot on the South because it's just more what I know about. I assume these stories were kind of reflected elsewhere in terms of the way that social housing was built. But certainly in London, because so much of it was bombed out, they decided that the quick and easy thing to do, and this is an et- eternal British government solution to like housing people in London, is to not house them in London at all and just build some new houses outside London. So they built, they wholesale built new towns in what were previously like incredibly rural communities. You've got like Harlow and Essex, Welling Garden City and Hertfordshire, various others. Like you can see, yeah, there's like Milton Keynes is in Cambridgeshire, isn't it? Milton Keynes is in Bedfordshire. Oh, Bedfordshire. Okay. That's slightly that's slightly newer than the others, I think. But yeah, and so basically, you had these things where. They kind of wholesale just took a strip of like, in Harlow's case, it was a series of like little villages and just built a fucking concrete metropolis on top of them effectively. Um, And in these houses, they kind of repeated what they'd done in London earlier by building terraced houses rather than building apartments or whatever. You got these kind of terraced houses, which weren't back to back. They had gardens and whatever. Um, But this is where you really start to get what we like to call some cursed architecture. Um, <laughs> because uh, in terms of the stylistics of these houses, they came up with uh, with Pebble Dash. Um, and I, I'm just going to read to you something from the Wikipedia uh, for Pebble Dash, uh, which says, Though it is an occasional home design fad, its general unpopularity in the UK today is estimated to reduce the value of a property by up to 5%. However, it remains very popular in Scotland and rural Ireland, with a high percentage of new houses still being built in this manner. The exterior wall finish was made popular in England and Wales during the 1920s when housing was in greater demand and house builders were forced to cut costs wherever they could and used pebble dash to cover poor quality brickwork, which also added rudimentary weather protection. Pebbles were dredged from the seabed to provide the building material needed, although most modern pebble dash is actually not pebbles at all, but small and sharp flint chips and should correctly be called spar dash or spar dash. Uh, sorry, those those things are actually spelt differently. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, first of all, it turns out that not all Pebble Dash is even really Pebble Dash. We've been lied to all this time. And it's, to me, at least, I think it's incredibly British that the whole thing was come up with initially to just c- cover up poor workmanship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's 
It's technically been around since like, oh fuck, like the 16th century, but it is always a a kind of cheap and quick way of filling in because building, like building architecture is so fucking expensive and it's Mm. usually quite a, like a high skilled um, profession, not just like architecture, but construction work. So if you're going to build out of bricks, then you need to be a pretty like skilled bricklayer. Like I could not go outside and build a brick wall without it falling on top of me and crushing me horribly equally if you're building out of stone you often need to need to know how to like chip and kind of carve that stone into um the right shape before you lay it on top of all the all of your other stones um pebble dashing is kind of like i would describe it as the instagram cake phenomenon of architecture you know that kind of craze that sort of started I guess in like 2018 for those incredibly um dramatic looking cakes where you kind of uh like the sort of like trompe loy cake where like you couldn't quite believe it was covered in like inches of icing and then you kind of like smash a load of sprinkles on it and then you like drizzle some icing like down the top and then you smash some macaroons and like a donut and like a waffle cone to kind of create yeah. and then this it's 1800 pounds a month <laughs> pretty much that is what pebble dash is you kind of smother on a kind of a cement mix and then you just smush which is put some rocks on that bitch that's that's how i feel it's like it's basically what if you made stucco depressing <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, it ca- it could technically be done sensitively. The Edwardians enjoyed it in moderation. Um, mm. If you use like a local stone, uh, but it's it's pretty fucking hard to get off. Like once you've put it on, and it's also it's designed to be waterproof, which is important in the UK because we are mm. just so so fucking rainy. Um, but then you are also yeah, just you're just sticking all of the problems behind this like impregnable layer i had heard that one of the 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 issues with um a lot of the the very hastily assembled uh towers and blocks of flats that were built you know Mm. as social housing you know up until the 70s that were pebble dash one of the concerns was that when the pebble dash was not done the seal wasn't particularly good which is typically i think you then actually have a ton of additional problems with rising damp because mm. of the cement and gravel and stuff, or that, that sort of finish kind of locking stuff and like making it once moisture's in, it's hard for it to escape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, like I said, it it, 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 it it seems to be like, to me, Pebble Dash is inextricable. It's inseparable from the impression of like it being rainy and shitty out. I don't know why it's such a British <laughs> image and as such, like it's always rainy, but it seems as though like the, cl- the it's also the case that the, uh, yeah, don't have pebble dash houses in like Gibraltar or somewhere. <laughs> well, be stucco. Just make it stucco. But no, we don't, we yeah. don't want stucco here. Um, yeah. I mean, I think for me, pebble dashing, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, just, just as a lay person, just having grown up around this shit and particularly in a town like Harlow where just everything is, ugly just like everything about and it's, it's one of the things i think that always really interested me even as a child was like why do they build things in such a just like unpleasant 
way like what because you go to you look at social housing in other countries and it like just doesn't have to be this way you go and look at like i don't know blocks of flats or whatever in berlin that were built as social housing they look fine they look like perfectly attractive like just like big rendered buildings whatever but for some reason in britain we have this addiction to like pebble dash covering things in fake york stone that's another one Uh, and my personal my personal hatred is the pvc window Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I the uh, the the perspex boxes in the entryway is another one. Oh yeah, Um, and perspex box on the back and call it a a conservatory. Yeah, I mean, I've I've noticed the same thing. Like there is just a general, and 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 I've said this before on Trash Future, but maybe not on Britonology, that uh, one of the funniest and most redeeming sort of things for me was during the 2019 general election. There were so many Americans paying attention to all the canvassing because obviously a ton of Americans who you know pro Corbyn and supporting Labour. And one of the sort of constant refrains that I kept hearing from people seeing these pictures from people canvassing was like, wow, is every building in the UK about to fall over and a huge piece of shit? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Basically, yes. Uh, Yeah. I I don't know if you have any input on the sort of like architectural stylistics of British housing. Yeah, I guess. I mean, everything everything you said is completely correct. Um, I guess my personal pet theory is that we have just done such a shit job of um learning from the mistakes of of what of what's been done before i mean partly because we've only been building social housing or like mass mass housing um for such a short period of time but um like i mean i do have a soft spot for architects they often mean mm-hmm. well but it's really easy to, to <laughs> we're fuck. not completely canceling architects <laughs> But um, if you you can't always control how people are going to live inside your building, um, but mm. you do have to take certain things into account, which is often the weather or the lifestyles of the people that are going to be um, living in them. And it does seem that kind of again and again, little mistakes have added up to create environments that are kind of uniquely depressing or ill-suited for the people who are trying to live in them and then this has become the kind of political axe to grind where it's like oh well you know they built such we we tried public housing one time and look at how like disgusting it is and everyone hates it and we just need to like (laughs) knock it down um which is like no you're you're missing the point of of uh of the entire endeavor but if we just keep kind of essentially like letting the castle fall down and then just like build another one right on that same swamp then um then you're just gonna keep keep perpetuating the issues i actually when i was like thinking about um doing this episode with you guys i had just finished um deborah orr's uh her memoir which is about like growing up in scotland and um i'll just like I'll read you a bit of it because it's I think it just mm-hmm. perfectly encapsulates um how like minor fuck ups when it comes to architecture can kind of just completely bring a community to its knees essentially. So oh, um Deborah grew up in uh like outside of Edinburgh, um in a in a like Motherwell was this huge steel production factory and mm-hmm. when she was a child, her mum like swapped them into a council flat that they thought was going to be in like a better part of town and it just turned Mm. out to be another shithole so this is um 
I can't actually find the architect for this, so like I can't I can't like retroactively counsel. Can't assign them. blame. <laughs> but um, it's um it's Muir House, which is um I think to the east of of Edinburgh. And she she says, um lots of aspects of actually living there hadn't been thought about, or of dying there. Mrs. O'Brien's wake had gone without much incident, but in the Thirteen Towers, it was a different matter. The lifts were too small to accommodate a horizontal coffin, so bodies had to be taken down in a chair. If your tradition was to have a wake at home, this was difficult, especially if you were high up. It was very hard on the Catholics. <laughs> You're just oh, like... Jesus. Like, fuck, yeah, you got, you got to think about... The fact that if you're building places for people to live in, then you've got to think about them dying in there as well. Um, mm. And if you build these towers with lifts, then you need to be able to to remove a body. Um, it's amazing to imagine some like dastardly English <laughs> architect coming up with the idea of like forcing Catholics to do weekend at Bernie's shit by making all of the lifts slightly too small. <laughs> I mean, I just find it funny because, I mean, before I moved to the UK, um, even as a kid, because of being a, a fan of The Clash and hearing songs by mm. then, there's one in particular that I remember that basically talks about social housing just like being built by people who didn't give a shit and like the mm. conditions being bad, stuff like the lifts being broken and turning into like people just pissing in them nonstop. And I didn't really understand that until I lived in, you know, a, a council estate where like it was perfectly fine, but they couldn't keep up with the cleaning because of just how much people were using it you know in fucked up ways and it's like it would be perfectly fine to live in if like they had just had mm. if they had just done like if they could have for one if the council had, had could take better care of the buildings but also you realize like there are some some big design flaws and it's like there are some really really highly regarded brutalist social housing projects both in the uk and and elsewhere mm. i mean you think about the was it unité d'habitation in marseille which is like one of the most famous modernist buildings mm. or even trellic tower in London is like very highly regarded as like a brutalist mm. building. But then for every one of those, you've got like these just horrendously slapdash panel towers, mm. you know, where even just like, a, for example, uh, panel construction, not that much explosive pressure can cause the whole panel to fucking fail. Um, Which you see in Russia all the yeah, time. Yeah, I was say, the Khrushchevkas yeah. are like that too. And then there are buildings in the UK that are similar issue yeah uh that i mean and I, as i understand because look particularly alarming because you can they look like they're fucking put together with glue and you can see between the panels the stuff like kind of like oozing out and you're like yeah that doesn't look great i'm not <laughs> i wouldn't want to live in that yeah khrushchevka's always are great too because of the fact that like the the sort of wood bay window attachments onto the concrete mm. just oh, make yeah, them yeah. look like the building has grown tumors. Well, yeah, well, because mostly that was people had a balcony and they enclosed it to make gotcha. more indoor. Because who needs a fucking balcony in Shelley Abbott's? Like, yeah, you're not going to get much <laughs> use out of that. Oh, oh, it's minus 40. Shall we eat dinner outside? Like, no. <laughs> Even Russians aren't that insane. Um, well, yeah, if you look around Tbilisi and where people are just like, well, if you're not going to build any more fucking houses, we'll just like build our own personal extensions and stack them on top of each other. So you get yes. these like tower, like Soviet era tower blocks that then mm. everyone has built their own extension on top of their neighbor's extension just to like 
create yeah, I mean, which, is, which, is, which is coincidentally Tory housing policy for the next 10 years. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, just no planning permission at all. Yeah, Tbilisi is phenomenal in that regard because everything everything about it is so like chaotic and piled one on top of the other. I remember being there once. And we're like, how nice time. I'm like, oh yeah, it's so cool. Like, there's like higgledy-piggledy streets and stuff. And then it started raining and we were like, oh my fucking God, <laughs> because just there's no drainage at all. And everyone's drain pipe from their roof comes out of the wall. Rather than going to the ground and into a gutter, they jut out from the wall at about head height and they just shoot into the middle. So as soon as it starts raining, you, it's just like running a fucking gauntlet of like drain pipes spewing water at you. Um, that's what happens when you kind of have un- unsupervised planning. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't want to make this all about like the trauma of various like buildings I've lived in, but I did. Um, and actually, I'd have to say this is like one of my favorite London flats. Um, but I lived on the Brandon estate for a couple of years, um, which is like considered like one of the better better versions of these kind of uh, 60s um, mm. concrete builds. I didn't live in one of the towers. I lived in a kind of uh, stack of duplexes, so about six, seven stories high. But yeah. um, when it rained too hard, uh, the water would just start spewing back out of the shower. Um, <laughs> oh, that doesn't sound very good. <laughs> Not good. This was also how we discovered that this problem had been ongoing and our landlord who had kind of bought it presumably either under right to buy or kind of from someone who had, um, his response to kind of the plaster and walls getting damp was simply to buy some of that um, kind of polystyrene foam board from a craft shop and just stick it to the to the ceiling that was landlords being cool <laughs> but yeah it turned out that the these kind of flat roofed buildings have a downpipe so that when all of the rain that happens very often in the uk comes it all kind of funnels towards this downpipe um but the council had forgotten to kind of they send in someone with a huge chain grinder to stick it down the pipe and kind of clear out all of the crap and they just hadn't done that so all of the crap and all of the water was just like backing up into our into our bathroom. In Soviet Britain, shower takes you. <laughs> <laughs> we were in a similar situation in uh, in Bell's Gardens Estate in Peckham, which was that uh, the the every all the flats had balconies. Or on the we were on the fourth floor. The floor, fourth mm. and second floors had balconies, but uh, they hadn't cleaned the gutters in so long that like the leaves had turned to soil, which had then grown moss and plants in the gutters. So the gutters didn't really drain. <laughs> so everyone's balcony would flood when it rained. And it's like what well, it had netting, the safety netting on it too. So you couldn't really get up there to clean it yourself, even if you mm. wanted to be industrious. And so you had to just become accustomed to using a broom to sweep all of the water into the drain because it would flood every time that, uh, that it ran. It's like, it could be nice, but once again, like it wasn't even a bad building. And I knew it had a bad reputation, but it wasn't even a bad building. It was actually mm. far better built than new builds that I've seen in this country. Yeah. It's just well, the that's something that we should definitely come on oh, to. Oh yeah, like if you get a new build, it's not going to be like rain. It's going to be yeah. And the one point sewage. I want to... Th- throw in and I'm sorry to cut you off the one point I want to throw in is that like I feel that same way because when I go running in Burgess Park there's like these big 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 tower blocks that were you know probably 60s 70s era mm-hmm. construction and they're all getting demolished and replaced and it's like I realized that there were some huge problems that came with like unforeseen issues with those like the maintenance and like just yeah, problems yeah, yeah. overall but like the thing about it is that those were low cost housing for so many people mm. and like once that once that's gone it's never coming back yeah it'll be not replaced in our by a block of luxury flats yeah. that are poorly built are with just a sort of 10% built. Yeah. social housing or yeah, whatever yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and um, like the Brandon estate was it was nice to live on it was um i had a kind of a public library a laundrette a shop 
a pharmacy. Everything was down mm. in the central courtyard and the heating was done um, like as a building. You didn't pay for your yeah. own heating. Like there was yeah, a- Bell's Garden was like that too, yeah. Which is incredible. And you were you were kind of, the way that the flats were all laid out, you're also sharing a lot of walls with your neighbors. So the mm. warmth was kind of- it was like the warmest winter I've ever had in England. Yeah, we, we moved after one year, we moved to a new place that's a much older building. And yeah, we realized just how fucking cold, even though it's like temperature wise, <laughs> it's not cold, just how cold it feels. Because yeah, you have b- solid brick walls with no insulation. They just mm. became like cold radiators in the wintertime. Yeah. And I was going to point that out, uh, something that I thought was really funny. Just as a side note, you might laugh at this too. Similar situation for us. We had, uh, when we moved into the place, like there was actually a boiler room and there was a huge cistern that filled with a pump from the like municipal boiler for the whole estate, like the whole complex of buildings. So we didn't pay for hot water or for heat. However, the hilarious thing was the cold water, same thing, pump, put it into a tank, but the cistern was made of asbestos cement. Right. And it still had the original labels from when it was installed in like the mid seventies. And like that company hasn't existed since like 1979. And it's just Mm. like, well, I hope they've done whatever maintenance one has to do on asbestos cement because it's a hundred percent. I got a a PPE contract actually. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. I mean, and it's an interesting phenomenon that I think will, will move us on nicely that you often find that, uh, with in terms of British social housing, which like as a phenomenon, which kind of goes from let's say the the 1930s to sort of like the 1980s, generally speaking, the older the block is, the more desirable it is. Because yeah. like a lot of the blocks from the 50s and 60s are kind of ugly, but they're spacious and they're warm, and they were built with like kind of communities in mind. Like India was saying, you've got a shop and like whatever. They're kind of built in a way that makes sense according to those kind of like mid-century ideals, if yeah. you like. And then as it got later and later, the buildings got uglier and uglier smaller and smaller and less and less practical until you get like these housing estates that were built in the 80s that just are like horrendous like built out of like bright yellow bricks and like all the rooms are tiny like there's no provision of like services or anything um which i guess kind of like neatly leads us into the right to buy um i like india do you have any thoughts on right to buy i mean it just like you can't like be opposed to it as a concept, but the problem, like, and I'm far be it for me to kind of become an amateur economist, but I don't, I just don't. <laughs> There's no one to stop you, India, honestly. Okay. If you want to become so, an amateur economist so on this you, show. If you get the council to build all the buildings and then people want to buy them, which is fine. Like, I can understand that, uh, you know, I mean, especially if they've built something great, like it's an incentive to build something nice that people want to like live in and pass mm. down to their children and create communities, um, which in of itself isn't a bad idea because a lot of the problems with these um, estates that were built, even the ones that are architecturally pretty, like sound and solid and still standing, which we can get to, but um, mm. is that the idea was when these kind of scare quotes, slum clearances are happening, you would move an entire street worth of of people so like this is what you find in like park hill and sheffield they would literally transpose entire neighborhoods into just like stack them up inside a housing estate um and you would keep the road names you would keep people's house numbers so that you were moving like an entire community wholesale into these new developments so i can understand why you then several years down the line you know People people were clamoring to buy their houses, hmm. um, but then you kind of got to build more. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. There's that. <laughs> Whereas, um, and the, we've touched on this before, but the problem is, is that, um, like if you've got council housing, like it's not, it's not free in the UK. It's, uh, you pay mm. a, a subsidized rent to the council, but then that is money for the council to then go and build more houses apart yeah. from under our current government that doesn't work because you as a council are not allowed to take on debt so you can't ever put out the money for building more houses because that would be bad and then mm. you can't like build any more houses for people to live in and pay the council rent before they then buy it off the council and the council rent <laughs> i mean we, we should we should specify is i mean i i just recall this from living in Southwark, I uh, still live in Southwark, and the rates for like a one-bedroom in Southwark, I think the council rates are like 550 pounds a month for a whole one-bedroom, which I mean, for American listeners, you have to realize- It's you, like you can't even about get a, half, maybe. Yeah, you can't even get like, a fucking bedroom for 550 pounds uh, yeah. unless you're like pretty far out in London. I know people who pay that for one-bedrooms, but they live in like Wood Green, you know what I mean? Like really You can far get out. a room for 550 if you're prepared to live in somewhere like, I don't know, like Seven Sisters, like somewhere that's a little bit rough, maybe. Like that's kind of. But it's still but like, it's easily, it's going to be, if yeah. not more. I mean, I've, now prices have come down for one bedrooms a little bit in London. But like when we first moved to, to, to London, yeah, 12, 13, 1400 pounds a month seemed to be pretty normal in South London and like mm. uh, in nicer areas or closer to the central city. It was, yeah, far, far more expensive. So yeah, this, this, the, 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 the discount is great. But then like, you know, like India was just saying, you then turn around and fucking the 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 council can't really use that money to 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 continue. And as I recall, uh, right to buy was an idea that was proposed uh un, for under Labour when Jim Callahan was the PM, but they didn't do it. And then Thatcher did it, and obviously, like they made sure to make it like as landlord friendly as possible, mm. uh, which is as you will find the uh, the trend well, in this country. It's proved to be kind of a genius move from Thatcher in terms of keeping the Tories in power effectively forever because they sort of created a new constituency Huge class of landlords of, of homeowners yeah, yeah. 47% um, of people in the UK lived in council estates before yeah. 1979 so like but then simultaneously pulled up the ladder for anyone else to become homeowners because that route of I mean, it just goes back to the kind of tale as old as time thing of like the the boomer who benefits from like every piece of kind of social investment and then proceeds to like haul up the ladder behind them and say like, well, I never needed any of that shit. And it's like, <laughs> you bought a council house. <laughs> you bought a council house like back when like the median income was, I don't know, 6,000 pounds a year. You could buy a council house for like 12,000 pounds. Like the median yeah. income, the median family income in this country is like 28,000 pounds a year. It's far less for individuals. And the average house price in the Southeast is what, like 350, 400,000? pounds like mm. yeah so it's like it's gone from a factor of two to like a factor of 10 or worse yeah um and so now as a result of that as india was saying it's basically illegal to build more council housing <laughs> like because councils aren't allowed to like it's all very clever this stuff how it's never like it's never they don't say to councils where you can't build council housing but they just make it effectively impossible like india was saying you can't take on debt like all councils are constantly under huge amounts of pressure uh in the opposite direction to sell off their assets in order just to pay for their running costs as though that's a system that's going to work because eventually you just run out of assets to sell 
Um, and so yeah, and now, this is like framed as like entirely the council's fault. It's like, oh, look, like you're sitting on all of this like stock that you're not doing anything with because you don't have the money to refurbish with it. So really, mm. what you should do is sell it to your helpful, friendly local developer who will redevelop mm. this plot of land for you. And then because it'll be so nice, he'll like give you a couple of flats back. I mean, everyone will have to use a separate doorway to get into their flats because we don't of want like, the poor people to be. Uh, getting anywhere near the um the luxurious flats on this development um that, and they're like still at it i think like like a few weeks ago the government has like tr- started trying to like pass a law that basically um anyone can like but like go up to their council and basically be like well you're not using this like piece of land here so you really should like sell it to us or sell it to a developer mm. Just, I mean, I was thinking about this recently that uh, Southern Council is like, we're our ambitious plan to build 11,000 units of social housing by 2040. It's like, wait, you're building 11,000 by 2040. That, that's, that's what, 19 years from now? So yeah. that's basically like, we're going to build 500 units a year. It's like, that's ambitious, apparently. Like, yeah, yeah that's probably more than most any other council is doing, <laughs> but it's just not that much. Yeah, the goalposts have been when moved. When you think of so the much. scale of the housing shortage and the the, the price crisis here in the city and, and elsewhere in Greater London, and it's like yeah, yeah. because now I, I mean I feel like I mean again not being an expert, but you get these kind of there are just a few big development companies in Britain that you feel like are kind of writing the housing policy at this point, like uh, Persimmon and Taylor Wimpy and Red Row, whatever who invariably get the contracts to build these you know kind of like private social housing block combos where like they build development either of houses or apartments and then some percentage of it has to be like either social or what they call affordable in in quote marks (laughs) housing um often with a separate door or whatever and crucially as the we discussed this with uh india on the uh trash future about the help to buy homes which are very much cut from the same cloth uh often are total pieces of shit yeah, built very poorly well yeah because you're also like when you're putting it into private um hands like like what house builder has an incentive to kind of find a nice plot of land to build um to build these houses on like they're not going to try and like they're not hanging around like a council is kind of stuck there like you will have to deal with whatever shit you like you build eventually but i think it's like something like eleven thousand houses are currently like being planned in major mm. floodplains across across the country which is like i just love that tweet i sent it to you um oh yeah this but, is normal just show it to me <laughs> like um in the kind of torrential rain that we've had in the past week someone had snapped a picture of one of these um like the board they'll put up in the field being like, oh, buy these like wonderful, like three bedroom houses, like with help to buy. <laughs> it's just like under like three foot of water. Um, mm. uh, it's yeah. Stubbly Meadows in Rochdale, Manchester and uh, starting prices are £245,995 for a bit of flooded field. Fucking Christ. I mean, I just remember that yeah. being like like the North supposedly being cheaper. I mean, obviously that's cheaper than London, but still, I mean, that's that's wild, yeah. By, yeah, it's hardly cheap, is it? Yeah, it's not cheap at all. <laughs> Once again, I mean, that's still like 10 times the median family salary mm. for a median family income for, uh, for a house that's going to be shit. I mean, 
the right to buy stuff. There was recently a story in The Hated Guardian about uh, somebody in, I believe, Sheffield or Manchester mm. saving up and doing help to buy to buy her own flat. She bought a one bedroom for like 110,000 pounds. And um, I'm not joking. The cladding that they put on the roof was so poor quality and so flammable that they wound up charging people like an additional in her case, it was the same as her mortgage payment on top of her mortgage to hire a private security firm to do fire watch like they were in a fucking barracks building because they had to be somebody monitoring the place 24-7 to make sure it wasn't catching on fire. Oh, yeah. Incredible. I mean, this is the kind of like the post-Grenfell situation is where they've realized that not only are lots of kind of social housing schemes covered in flammable cladding, but a lot of new builds that people paid like serious amounts of money for are now covered in this cladding and um mm. you're you can't sell it because it's very dangerous and illegal yeah. to live there um but people are going to go bankrupt because she the did the woman in the story did yeah yeah the developers are like well we're not fucking paying for it you bought it now like you've got to pay to fix it <laughs> Your fault. Deal with it. Yeah, you shouldn't have bought the shitty house that we built. Uh, that, that sounds like a you problem to me. Um, it's it's amazing that like people have kind of bought the idea that we've suddenly realized that covering apartment buildings in flammable cladding is a bad idea because an apartment block burnt down. Like, surely someone could have done the math on that beforehand. Like, I don't know. We just used to build apartment buildings out of paraffin wax. It was never a problem before, but now people are moaning about it. Well, yeah, and the fact that like these. The buildings that they're covering are often like concrete 60s and 70s era, which are perfectly functional. Like sometimes then like not as well insulated as they could be. But Mm. um, in some ways, like the concrete was a lot better than what they are currently using to to make houses. And they're usually covering them for aesthetic reasons, right? That's normally my understanding of it. Because there was, I don't know if this was ever proven true, but supposedly Grenfell Tower had that cladding put on it because like other residents of like wealthier neighborhoods that could see the tower had complained about what it looked like. I don't know. I misremember the the cladding. The difference between covering the building in fireproof cladding and flammable cladding, which they wound up going was like something along the lines of like... I under- the idea that that's what it's advertised as. Yeah, like it you was- can either have the fireproof or the extremely flammable. flammable. Like the stuff they had was was not fireproof and was not, as I understand it, was not uh, safety rated for long enough for a building mm. of that size with regards to like how long it would take to evacuate a building. Yeah. And um, it saved them like 200,000 pounds in the whole project. So like 72 people died for them to save 200,000 pounds. Yeah, and on a tower block, which must be worth like at least 10 million, if not 15, 20 million pounds, yeah. And this is how desperate councils are to save money to try and... Because like, yeah, like it it takes a lot of money to to look after architecture. Like you can't just build a house and then leave it and expect it to be fine. It's the same with tower Mm. blocks. And I think with Grenfell, they haven't proven that it was entirely an aesthetic decision. But I think one of the telling features is that um the way the fire spread around the building was via this kind of crown at the top which served absolutely no no function it wasn't there to keep the rain off it wasn't there to kind of keep anything in place it was a a purely decorative element that was kind of bolted around the top and that was how the fire spread like different faces. I mean, I feel bad joking about it, but then they also feel like the council can be like, well, we've decided circling the building with hay is a particularly (laughs) nice design style. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's bleak, isn't it? Like the 
Because I mean, I think that you know, it's I I can get. I mean, it's it's bad, but I can sort of get my head around the way that people sort of don't care about social housing because they're like, well, I'm never going to need it. I've got my house, so who gives a fuck? But you get to this point where not only does the fact that we don't build any social housing skew the entire housing market, so it, like house prices, even if you don't need social housing, are like completely insane. So mm-hmm. like you might not need social housing, but you're now trapped in renting because like there's no, there is no supply of housing uh, to keep up with the demand. And then also there's no, there seems to be no incentive. I feel like social housing functioned in a bit of a similar way to the Soviet Union. Like I didn't necessarily, I wouldn't have liked to have lived in the Soviet Union, but like the Soviet Union kept the West on its toes. Like the West couldn't indulge its absolute basest instincts while it had a competitor. And then since the Soviet Union collapsed, we've just been like, hell, we're going to go hog. We're going to see like, oh, do you want to sell your blood? Let's try it. <laughs> do you want to you fuck a baby? That's 50,000 pounds. You want to eat a baby? 60,000 pounds. We got it all here. Don't worry. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mar- the logic of the market. And social housing is like a similar thing like okay like yeah i guess most people would rather not live in social housing if they can afford better housing or whatever but like the very existence of social housing means that private developers can't build absolute shit and expect people to live in it because there's a state provided alternative that's safe and you know i mean and for me also the point that i always make is like i would absolutely love i mean I, I wish i could own my own home but i don't think that's gonna happen without some serious luck uh so i would prefer if i was gonna pay rent to pay rent to the council and my rent, you know, go towards the maintenance of the building that I'm living in mm-hmm. and like improving the community I am in and helping build more housing and schools and stuff and like things people need as opposed to like, you know, some fucking Tory in Sussex who's just skimming off of everybody, which invariably that's yeah. what it is. And it's just like, I'd like that to be the option. But I mean, I, I know that uh, in, I keep bringing back Southwark because it's the only place I've mm-hmm. lived in the UK, but like the wait list to get, to get on the wait list. For yeah. social housing in Southwark, you have to prove that you've lived in Southwark for at least five years. And then you're on the waitlist, but I don't even know how long it is. In New York yeah. City... It depends usually depending on your circumstances. Like you, you skip the queue a bit if you've got kids and like various things. But y- yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it's long. Like you're talking like at least five years, but probably longer. The last time they opened up the public, uh, the, the waitlist to new public entries in New York City was before 9-11 for public housing there. Like that's it. Nine eleven ruined it for everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, hey, we lost some real estate, so until we mm. rebuild all of it, uh, you can't can't build it. Putting more people in public housing. So yeah, it's it's wild, and it's like you see. I think I, that that point of the sort of like counter hegemon of ideas, if you will, mm. like just something to oppose the idea that the only thing that's available is for you to to exist as a profit making vehicle for assholes who build very poor quality housing. Yeah, because this was something that I wanted to, and this is maybe like a a little thing to round out on with India is that like. I don't know. They build. Obviously, you do get the real horror stories, like the thing you were talking about with the the cladding on the help to buy place up north, where like they were just all went bankrupt because they had to have a fire wash or whatever. But even in just a low key way, I mean, in lots of towns, they build these huge developments of like what we would call like cookie cutter houses, where they all kind of look the same, and it's like you know your Taylor Wimpy or your Redrow or whatever, and they all just like not only are they kind of depressing to look at, but their the sizes are ridiculous. Like they say it's a three bedroom house, but a like two of the bedrooms are sort of like minuscule like they might work maybe for like young children but otherwise there's no real there's no real living space and also the space in the rest of the house isn't sufficient for a three-bedroom house like if you're in a three-bedroom victorian house it would be like double the size because they would think like well you need so much kitchen space so much living room space they're like no a three-bedroom house needs three bedrooms but it can have the apartment of like a it can have the kitchen of like a studio flat and like the gardens are similarly basically non-existent they're almost back to building back-to-backs again um and it's like, is this the kind of bright future of private housing that we can expect? Well, yeah, <laughs> and those and are I mean, expensive. 
this like people when they want to demonize the mass housing projects of the of the 60s and 70s um like a lot of the reasons that they were being built and the kind of philosophies and politics of the architects um so kind of like a lot of the Corbusier's thinking was about working out how much space an individual an individual person needed to live a mm. good and healthy and comfortable life so a reason that a lot of these um these housing projects like despite having like like some of them certainly had like really big issues and you know some of them had minor issues um they they were built for for living in mm. and um this idea that you just like knock them down and start again and build something kind of that might look kind of a little bit like nicer but it's just crappier to live in mm. i mean the thing that really frustrates me is that that this is not a problem that we solely have in the uk like this is an issue that happened like certainly across all of the rest of europe where they've had to reckon with um the like increasing need for social housing and if you look at the last two winners of this, um, the EU Prize for Contemporary Architecture uh, has like clearly their jury has been making a statement. Um, they have picked these two um, projects that were not new builds but redevelopments of mm. um, existing housing. So last year, I think it was, it went to this project that was like five hundred and thirty houses. Um, in France, like built across a couple of blocks. Um, they built in the 1960s and like three architecture firms took it on and they basically looked at it and were like, well, no, we shouldn't demolish this. Like knocking it down is going to be like, it, it's also incredibly environmentally destructive to knock down a building. Mm. But people were living there and like their lives were there. So they came up with a design where they kind of built these extra decks, kind of like in the Tbilisi style, but like, mm planning permission and health and safety and they built these extra decks <laughs> up the side and then everyone everyone's apartment got this new kind of garden sunroom that they were allowed to kind of do with what they what they liked and um they were able to kind of customize it and the disruption was very minimal they kind of would do it in like sections so you didn't have to like move out and that you could still enjoy living there and then in 2017 the winner of this prize is biannual was a again 1960s kind of Amsterdam building that had fallen kind of to this the the problems of urban decay and uh mm. stuff beginning to like look pretty crappy and then it gains a crappy reputation um and they needed an inexpensive solution so they they like sexed up the facades and the communal areas and then they gave people the money and the support to renovate their flats inside them and just modernize them and make them a nice place to live and you're like this like this is not beyond the wit of men like a lot of architects are like mm. like smart kind people that want to do good um you go to the graduate shows and you see people coming up with all these like exciting solutions for living and then the British version of that would probably be the Park Hill Estate, where, uh, which is the one I was talking about, where they kind of transposed everyone, um, and then they were like, "Oh no, like there's the crime and the drugs, and it's terrible." And like, "Oh, I guess like we'll just 
let it fall into disrepair. And then the council has had to seek a private development partner to kind of reinvigorate it. Just laughing at the idea of the renovation budget, what that would look like in the UK. And it's like, oh, we hired a private company and gave them the money and they're going to give you and you just get like a new toilet and a single piece of PVC pipe. And it's like, all right, luxury flat, yours at last. That's right. they're, They're doing quite a lot to it. But the way that they're doing it is they've like chopped it into three. Um, the first phase was like the, the council, like, the council housing so that's like the cheapest phase where they've kind of like put some like mm. rainbow colored panels on the side um so that's your social housing and it's then very woke and inclusive that's yeah the key thing. and so, i mean so the developers are called urban splash and they're not like the worst that i've met but they're oh, not no, i already hate them just based <laughs> on the name <laughs> because then they so they completed the first phase and they moved kind of the people who people who've been on like waitlist for ages kind of like moved in and then they were were doing the second phase which they had like different architects in and they were kind of making them a bit fancier because they were they were going to be selling like a lot mm. of these and then they kind of finished that and everyone was like wait you said that like you were actually going to have like 20 percent affordable in this and, like 20 percent affordable in that but there's like no affordable houses in this um, which i put to them and they were just like oh yeah but like you see, we we actually just built so many of these affordable homes in the first phase that we just didn't have like any money left over for the second phase. So unfortunately, uh-huh. unfortunately, we can't deliver that. But we over delivered in the first phase, so it's fine. Um, and yeah, also, it's more like of a vibe actually, because because of the crime, like because there's like a crime issue potentially. Um, now, like all of the all of the floors have their own key fob. <laughs> So all of these like communal areas that you're supposed to be able to share and like uh, that even if you're living in the social housing, you'll be able to access everything. They're like, well, how exactly are you going to be able to like access that if if there's like, a key fob and you don't have the key to like get into it? <laughs> and then they built the fir- third phase, which is student housing. <laughs> so Oh, good. Well, that always <laughs> goes well. Um, which is like... And I mean, again, I don't know for like American listeners whether this is as much of a phenomenon, but that student housing as well, like the real money is for developers because now mm. people pay an insane amount of money. Well, I mean, not for like American, not for Americans, but it used to be kind of like free and then it was like three grand a term. Now it's like minimum nine grand a term um, a year to go yeah. to. Most of the accommodation is like something which in Sweden would be considered unfit for prisoners. <laughs> Yeah, in the U.S., you typically you typically have dormitories, and they they are building new ones. But most universities, like a lot of their stuff, was built immediately post war, and so you have dorms. But they're you know you'll either if you're lucky, you get a private room. Normally, you share a room uh, with one other person, and then you'll have communal, maybe like an ensuite bathroom that you share with another room. Or when I was a university student, we just had a bathroom on the floor that had showers and toilets and stuff like that. But there's not really the equivalent of the student apartment blocks that are sort of official university housing if that stuff gets mm-hmm. built it's entirely private and entirely privately rented um it's not really yeah no no i mean this is like private student accommodation so it's like fancy they're aiming for the ah. overseas student market gotcha, um, it's yeah. very like shiny you know you would not be sharing a bathroom here you're gonna have like a cinema room that you can rent out um and and they're kind of the way that they're selling this which i just 
I just don't even know how to feel about it. Is there like, oh, this is like this brilliant development where we've, we've brought back to life this like symbol of like Sheffield and, and you can now like be a student and you can rent one of these student apartments. And then, you know, you can have your successful career that you'll definitely have because you've paid all of this money for a degree. And then you could buy your first house and like another part of this development. And you're like, is that like, that's really Actually, like the, the best. You can also, there's 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 a, there's a, a care home in another one of the buildings too. You're basically <laughs> this, this huge yeah, dormitory. <laughs> this is this dormitory is just the entire set of Snowpiercer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never Logan's run. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all it's all just such a mess. I mean, I guess I guess the meme the meme I would draw of it all is like you know you've got your you've got your working poor and you've got your government and the, the it's like the Jesus meme where it's like, we're going to build some social housing and it's like, do you consent? And the working poor are like, yes. And it's like, do you consent? And the local authorities like, yes. And like, but there isn't there someone you forgot to ask. And there's a big picture of Jeff Fairburn and he's like, but I don't consent. <laughs> um, you yeah. gonna live in this big asbestos tower block. Wait, no, actually asbestos isn't sufficiently flammable. Asbestos is, if anything, not very flammable. Uh, it would have to be, yeah, made out of like, I don't know, jellied kerosene or something. <laughs> For decorative um, reasons only. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, I think that I think that kind of brings us to a neat, uh, if not particularly optimistic, conclusion. Uh, I think, nevertheless, we've given people a pretty good rundown of just just how uh, just how cursed the swamp castle that we're all living in is. Um, so it remains only to thank India very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Uh, not really. Just follow me on Twitter. It's at India Block, I'll be doing a newsletter at some point, uh, won't we all? But um, nice. Yeah, just... If you'd like to learn anything more about the, the horrendous ineptitude of uh, British property developers and so on, uh, give India's newsletter a read. <laughs> <laughs> all right, phenomenal. Well, this has been another Britonology. Uh, as ever, I've been my lovers. I've been joined by Nate Bethay, and uh, we'll see you next time.